You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. All right, everyone. Today, we've got Ali Abdal, who is the, he's a former doctor. He's a YouTuber with 2.6 million subscribers. And I would watch his videos on Notion tutorials quite a bit. Everyone would talk about him all the time. He's also on my friend Noah Kagan's podcast before too. He's also a podcaster as well. So we're going to talk about that. And he's also working on a new project, which is a little ways out, but I still want to talk about it a little bit. So Ali, welcome to the pod. How's it going, man? Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good. 6 p.m. today here in London. Just wrapped up a podcast recording of my own. I started Amazing. a new podcast, which we do in-person interviews with. And so, yeah, that's been a quite a fun way to just have cool conversations with cool people. Fascinating. So I want to talk about your life as a creator because like, you know, being an Asian, right? Like our parents want us to be doctors, lawyers, engineers, and you kicked ass as a doctor. I remember I would watch some of the videos where you're like talking about the work. And I was like, man, you know, at some point he's just going to quit and go all in on being a creator. And like you did it. So do you want to talk about your background a little bit? Because I think it's fascinating. Yeah, sure. So I am currently 27 years old, but from the age of 18 through to 24, I was a medical student at Cambridge University. And then I worked as a doctor for two years, including for a year during the pandemic. Well, a few months during the pandemic, when pandemic happened. I'd always like, you know, since my first year of med school, when I discovered the four-hour work week, I always kind of knew that I don't want to be reliant on medicine to be my full-time income, because a lot of the doctors that I seem to be speaking to in hospitals and things, they didn't really seem to love it. They didn't seem to enjoy their jobs. And if I would ask them, hey, you know, if, if you won the lottery, would you still do medicine? Half of them would say I'd leave immediately. And the other half would say they would go part-time. And so I realized like the way I kind of thought about it through med school was, okay, I want to make passive income through tech startups on the side. And then I want to do medicine for fun. And in the end, I ended up going down the creator route rather than the startup route. But then when I had the option of being able to quit the job and really thinking, you know, do I really find passion and joy and fulfillment in medicine or in the other stuff that I'm doing? It was kind of a hard decision, partly because of the Asian thing, because my mom still isn't really a fan of that decision, but decided to go all in on the creative stuff and like leave medicine behind. Like my mom still gives me crap all the time and she doesn't really know what I do. Right. So like, does your mom still do that right now? And how do you try to reconcile that? Oh God. Yeah, Absolutely. It's not every conversation these days. It's more like every two or three conversations. She'll bring up, oh, Ali, you know, your life would be so much better if you just went back into medicine. You're going to regret this 10 years from now, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you don't try to fight it, right? You're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends how I'm feeling. Sometimes I'm like, all right, let's go. And I I yeah. kind of lock horns with her and actually try and argue the point. Yeah. Other times I'm like, yeah, probably. <laughs> Okay. That's awesome. So, okay. Let's talk about your journey as a creator because a lot of people want to be YouTubers, right? And this podcast, it's a marketing related podcast. So can you talk about that journey? Because I don't think it's always up and to the right being a YouTube creator. Like it's freaking hard, right? So let's start there first. Yeah. I mean, hard is a strong word. It's not hard. Like coal mining is hard or like being a nurse is hard. I, I wouldn't it's, know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, you know, yeah, it's, a, it's a pretty cushy job as far as they go. But no, so I started in 2017. Initially, I actually started because it was content marketing for my business. So I didn't really think I'm going to be a YouTuber or I'm going to be a productivity expert. I was like, hey, I have a business where I help kids get into med school. Why don't I do content marketing by making videos, teaching kids how to get into med school? And then some of them are going to think this guy knows what he's talking about. I like his vibe. And therefore, they're going to sign up to my courses and my classes and stuff. And so, yeah, first dozen or so, two dozen videos on the channel were aimed at that. And then I kind of thought, you know what? There's this like this vlogging thing is a thing. And there seems to be a gap in the market. There's not many people in the UK vlogging about life as a doctor. 
So why don't I vlog life as a medical student? And then when I'm a doctor, I'll, I'll have done the reps. I'll have made my hundred crappy videos and then I'll be able to vlog life as a doctor. And then I was kind of doing that through med school. I decided like that I wasn't going to prepare for finals because I was like, I'm pretty sure I can pass the exam based on my current level of knowledge. And I'm pretty sure I'm not good enough or you know, the numbers mean it's mathematically impossible for me to graduate with a distinction, which is sort of like first class honor is the equivalent. I was like, you know what? every percentage point above the pass mark is kind of wasted effort. And so I spent those six months where instead of preparing for finals, just like coasting and editing videos basically all day, every day, which in hindsight was probably a good thing because after about six months and 52 videos, my channel hit a thousand subscribers. And then a few, you know, after about video number 85, we had a first viral video. Then video number 100 was also a semi-viral video and the channel really started to grow from there. So you said it took you six months to get to the first 1000 subscribers, correct? Yeah. So I was doing two videos a week, so six months, and that was 52 videos. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it just, I mean, this stuff takes time, right? It's to me, it's simple, not easy. And so like, and then you start to compound after a while. And I like on this podcast, Neil and I, we talk about how like usually with content or even with business, typically the three-year number is like kind of the magic number to reach success, quote unquote. So I know you made a, you made a video, I think you made a video on how you have this $3 million side business, right? And I think this was probably created around the same time that you're talking about what you're talking about right now, correct? Yeah. I mean, so when I say side business, it's like basically the YouTube channel and all the other stuff that I do. When I was working as a doctor, I was doing all of this stuff part-time. So, you know, I could use clickbaity titles in my videos, like how I built a $3 million business part-time, that kind of stuff. Got it. And so, so what actually went into that $3 million business part-time? Because I'm sure some people are thinking about doing that right now, whether they're an engineer, doctor, lawyer, or whatever other job. Yeah. So I guess really the foundation of the business as a whole is like the YouTube channel and the, you know, you're probably familiar with this as most of your listeners, you know, building an audience by creating loads of free content. And then you have an audience. And then when you want to sell something, you have an audience willing to buy from you. And so these days, more than 70% of our revenue comes from actually course sales, either through our own course, the part-time YouTuber Academy or through Skillshare, weirdly. Maybe 20% of the revenue comes from YouTube AdSense and YouTube brand deals and 10% from affiliate partners here and there. And so at the moment, like for 2021, we ran the numbers, made a video about this. The total was about $4 million from all of those sources all added up. Fascinating. So do you think you will continue? Because you, you are, to me, you're an educator at the end of the day. Like I'm looking at your Twitter right now, the, the feed, and like you have notes on the 12 and a half book, just a lot of tips on, on just like similar to me. Like I just like teaching, right? I don't really like drawing a lot of attention. So do you see yourself continuing down the course path or do you see it as a means to an end, like good cash flows from that? And then you're going to deploy it into investments. Like you just mentioned, like we just talked about angel investing before we started. So yeah. where do you see it going in like the next 10 years? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, I came across this question of like, what would you want written on your gravestone? And I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to figure this out. And I realized very quickly that the three things I would want on my gravestone, some combination of good father, good husband, and inspirational teacher. I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, maybe teaching is the thing that I like. And I, I looked back through my life and realized that I've kind of been teaching since the age of like 12, 13. And it was always one of the most fulfilling things that I did. And so I thought, okay, that's interesting. Like, you know, if I imagine my gravestone, if I imagine what people, what I want people to say at my funeral, none of it includes saving lives as a doctor or being nice to patients or anything like that but it does include being a really good teacher. So now I'm like, cool, well, what can I do to kind of basically teach forever? Because that's the thing that I like. And I think making YouTube videos and stuff is teaching at scale. Teaching courses is kind of teaching at scale. Writing a book, which is what I'm working on at the moment, is teaching at scale. I'd like to incorporate some more real life teaching into that. 
But really, if I think of overall where I want things to go, I don't really want to be a course creator forever. Like, you know, there's nothing wrong with courses, but if we had unlimited money, I wouldn't make another course. I would just focus on all the free stuff and things like writing books, because I think that, yeah, a course is good, but it's also broadly inaccessible for people that don't have the means to pay for it. And I think of the impact that a book like the four hour work week had on me when I was 18 years old and didn't have any money. And I was like, and that book just had completely accelerated the trajectory of my life. So I kind of want to do that. So if, if I imagine like a long-term kind of career goal in a way, although I don't really like goals, but I, what Tim Ferriss has made, Ryan Holiday, Cal Newport, I've got his book, Deep Work in front of me. I was just looking, looking through that earlier today. Something like that, where I can spend my time reading, writing, and teaching seems like a pretty good gig. Literally, when you asked that question, I'm like, the one word was teaching for me, but you added a word that's important, inspirational, inspired or inspirational mm -hmm. teaching, right? Like, I think it's important to inspire people because it also kind of, it is kind of entertaining when you're inspiring someone too, otherwise it's boring and dry. Yeah. Why do you not like goals? What's the reason? I don't mind goals, but I don't like goals that are sort of smart in the traditional sense, you know, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, timely. I don't like them because I think for me, goals put too much fixation on the destination, whereas really it's all about enjoying the journey. And in particular, I don't like goals that are outside of my control. So I'll give you an example. When I started embarking on this quest of writing the book, one of the goals I had in my mind was, I want this book to be a New York Times bestseller. That would be really cool. It unlocks lots of opportunities, blah, blah, blah. But that sort of goal was actually, it wasn't a motivating goal. It was actually a crushing goal because now whenever I'd sit down and write, I would think, oh my God, there's a lot of pressure on this. This book needs to be a New York Times bestseller because that's my goal. And then after a while, I realized that that's just a weird way of thinking about it. Instead, my new goal is to write a book I'm proud of. And write a book I'm proud of is not a good smart goal. Most goal gurus would be like, that's a bad goal. Basically, you're just saying, just do your best. And I'm like, yes, exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because now when I sit down to write my book, I think to myself, you know what? My aim is to write a book I'm proud of. The critics is outside of my control. Whether it hits the New York Times bestseller list, it's outside of my control. But I do control the outcome of writing a book I'm proud of. So in that sense, Goals, I think, are fine, but there's a really good paper that I was reading the other day, which talks about the evils of goal setting. And it says something like, goal setting is something that organizations have been trotting out willy-nilly, and it's all about goals. But in fact, goals are a prescription drug that should come with warning labels, because there's a bunch of evidence that shows, apparently, how goal setting can actually be demoting for a lot of people, and a lot of these studies are done in the world of business. So that's kind of why I don't, I don't really like goals. A, fixation on the destination rather than the journey, and B, Often when we set goals, we set goals that are outside of our control, which at least for me feels more demotivating rather than motivating. Got it. So it sounds like probably more loosely defined goals, right? And, and focusing more on the journey. So I guess I'm curious right now, like, because I, I feel kind of the same way, right? Like I have in front of me, like there's just one focus for the year, but it's not like anything specific, right? It doesn't need to be like this one number. So what is it for you? Is it like these one, two, three things more? Yeah, I mean... I guess it's sort of goal. like the problem with the word goal is that it just has so much baggage attached to it. And really, you know, me getting up and getting a cup of coffee is goal directed behavior. And, but also me having the goal of, you know, leaving a legacy when I'm dead is also a goal. And it's just like, there's all the word goal is used to describe a lot of things. So I think mm -hmm. we need some kind of new terminology around that. For me, I guess my main goal for the year is like, Hey, I actually just want to write this book and I want mm. to try and make it good, good defined as a book I'm proud of. So right now for the next quarter, it's completely crappy first draft. And then we'll see what happens beyond that point. But I do also have a few other quote goals. Like I want to get better at cooking and therefore I want to host dinner parties. I want to get into acro yoga. And so I want to get better at stretching. And so a few things like that here and there mm. as well. But the main one is really finishing the book. 
Got it. Can you talk a little more about the business today? You've just mentioned like you, you've grown quite a bit, right? You, you now have 17 full-time employees. You've got this office now. So how is the business doing today? And, and what are kind of the main revenue sources now? Yeah. So it's doing, I think, pretty well. Yeah. So we did 4 million in revenue in 2021, grew the team from 4 to 17. So then there's actually 18, if you include me. So there are now 18 of us in the team, mostly working full-time. Most of our revenue comes from our YouTuber Academy, which is our live cohort-based course. A big chunk of it comes from Skillshare as well. I think we make about $800,000 a year from Skillshare courses, maybe about 300K from YouTube AdSense, maybe about 500K, 400K from sponsorships, maybe about 200K from affiliate revenue. So it all adds up to this pot of 4 million last year. I think, yeah, what we're trying to do broadly is, you know, I guess our, our core focus is to help people live their best lives by creating inspiring educational content. And that sounds always cheesy and cringe every time I say it. But the more I say it, the more okay I'm becoming with that phrase. And so really what we're trying to do this year is, you know, we're trying to build this extra brand. We're trying to build a separate YouTube channel that can grow without me being the core kind of front runner of it. We're trying to make a course that's better. We're trying to grow that. And really the main thing is I'm trying to spend all my time writing the book and letting the team take care of most of the other stuff in the business. Yeah. I think a lot of people want to do what you do, right? Because I mean, you know, now we're seeing a trend where creators are building the audience and now they're layering a business on top of it. And, you know, I would say you're very humble for someone that has like this audience, right? Some people like they, it starts to get to them a little bit, right? The ego starts to just go out of control, but I can tell because you're well-learned, you're well-read, you've managed to gain a lot of perspective that way. So the question is, you've built the audience. And so you're really transitioning now into, you know, becoming much more of an entrepreneur, right? You've added, you know, headcount, you have the office. So what are some core key lessons you think you've learned, you know, kind of transitioning from creator to entrepreneur? Mm, that's a good question. Creator to entrepreneur. So there were a few books that had a major impact. The first one that I really read about this was The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber, which I read about two years ago. And I was completely game-changing. And then, you know, started being okay with hiring and delegation and stuff. Then last year, I discovered a book called Traction by Gina Wickman, which is all about this entrepreneurial operating system. And that was when we had about eight people in the team. And, you know, when you have a team of two or three, you can get by just making shit up as you go along. When you start having eight people, like you stop being able to make shit up as you go along. And the book Traction really gave us a very clear, specific way of running the business, which basically revolves around people kind of basically clarity and accountability. And all of the problems that we've had in the business stem from a lack of clarity and a lack of accountability and a lack of communication. And there's a great book I came across a few months ago called The Four Obsessions of an Extraordinary Executive, which was absolutely fantastic. And it's basically saying that when you're a leader, you only need to worry about four things. Number one, actually, I can't remember what, the, what those four things are, are now. I have them on Apple Notes. I don't know if you've read that book. If I'm No, you know what's funny? I was like, that sounds like a Patrick Lencioni book. And I just looked yeah. at it. It is. <laughs> It absolutely. Let, let, let me guess. Here, let me guess. So maybe it's recruiting, vision, financing. Do any of those go in there? It's even simpler than that. Principle number one. So the story is really good. It's basically a story of these two CEOs. One of them is succeeding and loving life. The other one is failing and hating life. And they kind of the one who's failing is looking at the one who's succeeding and be like, hey, what's going on? How is that guy so good? And the secret to that guy is he's just got a post-it note that has four things on it. And those are the only four things he does. So discipline number one, build a cohesive leadership team. Principle number two, create organizational clarity. Discipline three, over-communicate organizational clarity. And discipline four, build human systems to reinforce organizational clarity. And I read that and I was like, oh my God, like that is spot on. <laughs> All of the problems yep. that I've had in the business from not 
A, having a cohesive leadership team, which we now have, and just not knowing what organizational clarity is and how to reinforce it. But now hopefully we're moving closer in that direction. I love it. You just got me to buy three more credits. I was debating on audibling it or just, I think it's this, It's a fable, right? So it's, this is, a, I can yeah. audible this one. Um, yeah, it's, it's very good on audible. That's how I listen to it first. Cool. So, and by the way, like, you know, using EOS, once we add in an EOS implementer, like that ratcheted up another level. So I'm just going to plant a seed for you on that one. Let me know how it goes. Yeah, um, we've, we've been working with one for the last four months or so. Game oh, cool. You did it out the gate. Like we took like a year or two to get into that one. That was like, yeah, yeah we spent a few months being like, hey, let's try and figure this out ourselves. And I was like, you know what? £2,000 a day, $2,500 a day. That's actually yeah. really worth it. <laughs> that's yeah, that, that's a good price for sure. Cool. That, that's great. Those are all really great resources. So I think all of you that are leveling up there and make sure you check out Ali's courses as well. You know, what's interesting on the courses piece, because I've talked about this on, on this podcast before with Neil, because we we both, I come from online education and, you know, you know, he, he was selling courses too. And then same thing for us. But then what ended up happening was he just took the audience and he just focused it on the agency and the agency is doing really well now, multiples level higher than the courses. And then I found that to kind of be the same thing. So we, we were very similar because I also have an ad agency as well. And then now it's just like, there's two ways to look at it. It's like, okay, you can take the cash flows and then just go deploy it into other sources, call it web three, call it angel investing, whatever, or you can sell it for like a high multiple. So a lot of different ways to skin a cat. I just want to plant the seed for people. So I want to talk about the book that you're working on that won't be out for a while, but I just want to get into your head a little bit. So tell us about the book and then tell us about why it's important to you. Hmm. That's a hard question. <laughs> yeah. It's like when you're writing a book, you always have to keep on asking yourself, what is this book actually about? And I've been working on it for over a year now where sort of going back and forth with the editors and the publishers and like in my head and trying to figure out like, what the hell is this book actually about? But if I had to summarize it, the elevator pitch, it's something, it's something like, we've been told that productivity and success is about discipline and grit and hard work and all that kind of stuff. But there is another path to productivity and success. And that path is to work with our brains rather than against it. And so really the solution there is that actually to make it fun. And fun basically means intrinsic motivation. So when we do things for their own sake, rather than because there is a reward on the other end. And so what the book is trying to explore is what are all the ways that we can manufacture intrinsic motivation? Like even if we're working a shitty job that we hate, even if it's a grind to edit those videos that we're doing on the side, even if you know working as a doctor is like hard and long hours and you don't really have much autonomy, in those situations, what can you do to just make it more fun? Well, I'm not saying, hey, everyone should quit their job and do things that are fun because I think that's kind of unrealistic. What I'm saying is that you can find ways to make anything more fun than it currently is. And if we look at the science, we look at the evidence, we look at the way, for example, dopamine works in our brain, the way the experience of fun is created, the, experience, the way the experience of intrinsic motivation is made, we can find that there are actually a few levers that we can pull that whatever we're doing, we can just make it more fun. And I think for me, that's been the secret, if there is one, of my productivity and success over the last few years. People would often ask that, hey, how did you have the motivation to grind out and make YouTube videos for the first six months, 50 videos, 100 videos when no one cared, weren't making any money? While, while going through med school or like, you know, you're working as a doctor in the pandemic. How do you find time to make videos when you go home from work, when people are tired? It's just because it was fun. And it's very easy to dismiss that. It's just like a trite, like, oh, lol, it's a YouTuber telling people to make things fun. But I think there's actually so much evidence around this that there's so much stuff we can do to make whatever we're doing more enjoyable. And if we do that, then we don't need to worry about discipline and willpower. We do things just because we enjoy doing them. You know, of all my entrepreneur friends that have played MMOs, they can see this easily, right? It's very understandable. It's like, oh, just look at life as a game, which is why, like, that's how I kind of look at it, right? 
And so every single day, you're just trying to get a little stronger and you're enjoying the grind. Right. And I think as the world, like, you know, people talk about the metaverse to you and me, it's like, we kind of lived in the metaverse, like playing wow. And these, these MMOs. Right. And now it's like, it's kind of, you know, that was our native world. And that we kept going back to that world because, you know, we were having fun, teamwork, communication, and all that stuff. And so, you know, the good thing is you have an audience already and that that should blow up book sales quickly. And I think the goal here, at least in my opinion, like even though I, don't, I know you don't like goals, it's just to like, it's a philosophy and you're going to have people following you. And then as long as you can try to help, you know, push them a little bit in the right direction, that's what it's all about. So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox for a second. I want to talk about the podcast. So tell us about the podcast. How long have you been doing it and how's it doing now? Yeah. So I, I actually have two podcasts. One is called Not Overthinking. And it's just a casual podcast that I do with my brother roughly once a week. So we've been doing that since like 2018, 2019. I can't quite remember. when we just have a bit of a chat. That's not particularly serious. The one we've started more seriously is called Deep Dive. And that's where I basically have conversations like this with entrepreneurs, creators, and other cool people. And we talk about how they got to where they are, lessons they've learned along the way, and just how they find joy and fulfillment in working in life. That's like our shtick. So it's great. Like It's mostly in-person interviews because I always get a lot more energy out of in-person interaction than kind of Zoom calls all day. Although the occasional Zoom call like this one is <laughs> once in a while is all right. And it's great. It's just an excuse for me to hang out with cool people and to add people to my network and to become friends with them and to have you know conversation from like 90 minutes up until like three and a half hours, I think was our, our longest one. It's the ultimate networking hack. It's like, can I get on a call with you? It's not very enticing, but hey, let's talk about your life and let's do it on my podcast. And I have an audience is way more interesting. So the reason I ask you about the podcast too, is because I'm curious to know, because you already have an audience with the YouTube side of things. So how have you been growing it? Because I literally, right before you, I was talking to my friend, Sam Parr of My First Million, and he's talked about how they've grown it to like 2 million downloads a month, right? So how have you been growing it? And I I can share a couple of things with you. So we haven't really been trying very hard to grow it. It's just sort of been kind of fairly organically. I think for YouTube channel, the podcast channel has like 30K subs. And I think we get like 20,000 downloads a week. So 80,000 a month which is nowhere near Sam's and Sean's for my first million. I don't really know. Like, how do you grow a podcast? (laughs) I'll tell you right now. So I'll tell you about us real quick. And I'll tell you about my conversation with Sam. So our podcast, so for marketing school, this one, this one gets about 1.2 million downloads a month, but also keep in mind that the problem is it's a daily one, right? So literally like most of the time it's Neil and I going for like five minutes each and, you know, occasionally we'll do like an interview like this because I just want to talk to someone cool. Right. And there's a lot of key takeaways for people. So the daily aspect definitely helps a lot. If you have an email list, that helps a lot too. The other thing is like talking to Sam, like, and also talking to my friend, Jordan Harbinger, who has the Art of Charm podcast. So he gets like five to 15 million downloads a month. It makes a lot of sense. Like when you're promoting, ideally you're promoting to like a native channel, right? Meaning that if you're trying to grow your podcast, you're ideally promoting other podcasts. So like you spend like a couple hundred grand, maybe a million dollars a year running ads on other podcasts, or you're appearing on other podcasts, or you're doing like trades, like reads, right? So literally after that that chat I had with Sam, I was like, let's just do a trade. So we're going to do a trade afterwards and we might just keep doing it. But more than anything, like they spend way more time. And I know you do this already with your content. You spend a lot of time researching and you just talk about what excites you and that just makes the content better. And that's how they've really leveled up their content. So that's what I learned from him. So yeah. Nice. That's a good yeah. shout. I'd, I'd never thought about doing the reads thing. Yeah. And he's like part of this network too. So there's that. Anyway, maybe I'm down to trade one of these days. Um, oh, nice. So yeah, there's that. And then I want to learn too, because I've, I've talked about you know your research process. I, I can tell you're a very detail-oriented guy. Is that true or false? Hmm. 
I like to think I'm broad brushstrokes initially and the detail gets filled in later. Or maybe you're more deliberate. Maybe that's a better word. Maybe. Yeah. Because yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what, like when I do like podcasts with Neil, we just go on, we just riff, right? For like Sam and Sean, they actually do a lot of preparation. They talk about all the things they're excited about. So like I can tell for you, your videos are longer form, let's say 15, 20 minutes usually, right? So I'm just keen to know, like, how do you learn? What does your learning stack look like? Hmm. How do I learn? Mostly books. There used to be podcasts. And then I realized the power of audiobooks. So actually, mostly my learning stack is audible at like two to three times speed. And if I listen to a book that particularly resonates with me, then I'll just buy it on Kindle. And then as I read it on Kindle, I'll highlight if I really feel down for it, then I'll take notes. But often for books that really resonate with me, I just make a video on the book, which is great because I'm revisiting the content and it makes for a good video usually. So I would say most of my learning happens. Yeah, happens from books. Also yeah. kind of happens from conversations. The nice thing about Twitter is that you can make friends on Twitter and hop on Zoom calls with them. And so often if I want to reach out to someone, I'll just send them a message be like, hey, I'm struggling with this thing. Any chance you could help? Yeah. And also on the podcast, like the, the, the glorious thing about having a very long form podcast is that I can kind of turn it into a therapy session for myself. Right. And sometimes the audience gets a bit annoyed at this. It's like, oh, Ali's talking about the struggles of writing a book once again. But it's great. It means I get to learn from people who are who have done the things that I, I haven't done yet. I doubt they would get annoyed or too much. I mean, it's, it's your podcast. It's your conversation. You know, one quote that sticks with me from Naval, it's like, listening to an audiobook is like juicing, right? And that's, that's always stuck with it. I still listen to audiobooks, by the way, but like, what is your take on that comment? Yeah, I think it is. It's because you lose the nutrients, not, right? So yeah, it's obviously not ideal, but I think, you know, I can listen to two audiobooks a week just because driving and gym and stuff. And I don't make the time to sit down and read two books a week. Then some people say, well, it's not about the quantity of books. It's about how you apply the lessons from them. And I'm like, cool, I get it. I totally get it. I'm not saying an audiobook is like the only way to learn. What I'm saying is that like, you know, when someone recommends a book, like something like Four Obsessions of an Extraordinary Executive or Traction, and I don't actually have the time to sit down and read it, I can just listen to it at 3x speed. I'll get the gist of the ideas. And sometimes that's all it takes. Like I listen to Traction audiobook first. I listen to the Pat, Pat Lencioni stuff on Audible first. It's not the sort of book where I need to sit down and really take notes and really, really absorb it. And if I do, then I'll just buy it on Kindle and, and do that again. So that's what we did with Traction, but I didn't really need to do it with four obsessions. I just listened to it twice and mm. took some notes on Apple Notes and incorporated that into our business thing of these four obsessions. And that's the benefit from the book. Yeah. So I agree. It is juicing, but I think it's better than nothing. At least, you're, I mean, you're taking action from, you're getting the key takeaway. So that's what it is. Yeah. By the way, if you like traction and these other ones, check out the great CEO within and check out the oh. ideal team player. Oh, I read the great CEO within a few weeks ago. I haven't read the ideal team player. I will buy that. It's a ideal team player is like something we make new team members read. It's from Patrick Lencioni as well. It's also a fable, but there's three traits you look for, Sick. for any ideal team player. So it's like trying to program oh, people the amazing. right way. So amazing. Um, right. I'm yeah. literally just buying that on Audible right now. I will listen to it on the way home. Cool. So obviously, I mean, so we've talked about the pod, we've talked about YouTube, we've talked about you kind of transitioning and, and you know, becoming a very successful entrepreneur. And we've talked about all the books that you've read. So what would be one, usually I'll ask for favorite book, but I want like a, out of a book that people wouldn't know about that would be your favorite. Let's just go with that. So my favorite book of 2020 was Story Worthy by Matthew Dix. He was like the world champion storyteller. And that was absolutely amazing. Like a fantastic read, engaging, heart-rending, but also really good at helping you tell better stories. And I think storytelling is a skill that 
I'm certainly not amazing at and I want to improve. So that was great. And a book I read a few months ago was Die With Zero mm. by Bill Perkins, which is basically about its premise is that if you have anything more than zero dollars in your bank account by the time you die, you have done something wrong. And I think people like you and me, we can often be in sort of saving mode. Be like, I've got to keep building the nest egg more and more and more and more money, more sustainability, more like safety. And it's switching then into actually, it's okay to spend money on things that you enjoy and fulfilling experiences can actually be kind of hard. So that was the good book in that sense. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to the whole game and fun thing, right? It's like, oh, if the goal is to die with zero, then let's just play as much as we can, accumulate as much resources as we can, give back and just die. And like, that's it. <laughs> so, so I love that. Cool. And then how about your favorite business or personal tool that's not called Notion? Hmm, business or personal tool that's not called Notion. Honestly, these days it's called Apple Notes. Like we use Notion to organize team stuff, but like just being able to whip up my phone and just take notes on anything, it's just sick. Yeah. The ability to take my iPad out with the Apple Pencil, just tap the screen and just start doodling something, it's just really good. So I have switched most of my note-taking fancy stack just to Apple Notes, to be honest. You know, it's so weird. Like you do a lot of things that I do. Like it's like, we're just like the same person because like I have Notion, we pay for it on the team side. I also pay for Rome Research as well, yeah. but everything just comes back to like, and I think I've watched a video with you. You made a video on Rome Research, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it seems yeah, like everything goes back to simple. It's just, yeah. It's all, about, it's all about simple. I think it's like, have you, have you come across that midwits meme? Mm-mm. Oh, it's, it's really great. It's like, imagine I'm going to try and describe it in a podcast format. So like, imagine a kind of bell curve, an IQ bell curve. And on Oh the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so like on the, on, on the left-hand side, someone with an IQ of 40 is with the I use Apple notes. Someone with an IQ of 100 is like, oh my God, screw Apple Notes. You've got to use Notion, Rome, Evernote, building a second brain. Got to do my progressive summarization, my power and my note-taking, my Zellercaston. And then the guy with 150 IQ is, I use Apple Notes. Like, I think that's sort of the, the evolution of most of these things. Yep. Yep. I'm with you on that. Cool, man. So Ali, I mean, there's a lot of different ways for people to find you. What's the best way for people to find you online? Yeah. I mean, check out my YouTube channel. And if you want to chat, then hit me up on Twitter. Awesome. All right, Ali, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me on. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.